You're listening to Mend, Life at the Seams. Hi, I'm Amy Day. And I'm Annie Freaky. Each season, we deep dive into a select community to hear their tales in hopes that we may shed some new light of understanding in that given corner of the world. In this season of Mend, we start digging in our own backyards. Beneath the stereotypes and sensationalized portrayals of criminals, greed, and environmental destruction, to the origins of Humboldt County's marijuana culture, the backs of the landers, the activists, the families, the farmers, and the medicine makers. In a landscape that is rapidly shifting, we go back to the beginning to see where we started, where we've come thus far, and hopefully shed some light on the path that's yet to come. So join us. Pull up a chair, pour a glass, and listen. Carl is a former pastor of a cannabis-friendly all-faith church in Eureka, California, an educator in sustainability and self-sufficiency, a founder of Manabu Farms, and an advocate for outlaw farming, which is perhaps not what you may think it is. We spoke with him via phone from Flint, Michigan, where he resides in an effort to help the local community with the water crisis before heading back to Humboldt County. He speaks about the many services the church provided for the community here, the whys and hows of becoming producers rather than consumers, outlaw farming, his work in Flint, and offers his thoughts on how cannabis can help Humboldt County become a self-sustaining community. Some of what we loved about speaking with Carl was his passion for the work that he does, but also what his origin story of Humboldt implies. He came here as a traveler, what many might describe in not too polite terms as a transient. The stereotype of the humble transient juxtaposed with the amazing work that Carl has done here in this community and elsewhere is an interesting and important part of this story, and one could argue yet another stitch to further mend the way we relate to ourselves and to each other. Enjoy. first off is a Humboldt native raised in Fortuna and raised her whole entire 50 plus years in Humboldt. In fact, this is just now the first time she's left Humboldt. Um, And she, her and her family are big into the local area there. Uh, The Humboldt auction yard is ran by her family. Humboldt beef out there is them, the gym store. Her family's enthroned into Humboldt. Hmm. Myself, I was a, a traveler who found Humboldt to be the perfect place to claim home finally. And I still, my heart is still in Humboldt. I'm only here in Flint, Michigan because of the crisis here and I want to help the people of Flint. Hmm. But I fully intend to be back in Humboldt. I'm no offense to Flint, but I'm not raising my children here. I'm raising them back <laughs> in Humboldt. So. <laughs> uh, so what was the time period that you lived here for then? Uh, the time period we lived there, okay, I, boy, dates are my weakness. I've lived there for 16, 17 years, let's okay. say, um, almost 17 years, and I left three years ago. Okay. So, so the so 90s we'll, into the 2000s. Right. <laughs> we'll let people do the math yeah. on their own. That's a, that's a good, good construct there. We can work with that. Right. <laughs> Special surprise. And so, um, yeah. You know, as for my connection to the cannabis industry and the cannabis lifestyle in Humble, um, I've been a pothead and a pot user my whole entire life. Then I, I hurt my back really bad to the point where the doctor said I would never walk again. And I was lucky enough to kind of been healed by non-Western medicine. Mm. Um, and, but that means that I need to maintain a high level of cannabis use to keep myself out of pain and able to walk around. Um, So I got really into the whole pot culture because of that. You know, uh, also I was a trained, I learned how to become in Humboldt. I learned how to become a glass blower and worked for a few of the glass companies there making 
paraphernalia and pipes and things. Mm. And so that helped me to get even deeper into the culture. And from there, I finally, actually, hilariously, when I bought my house, the person I was buying my house there in Humboldt from sold me on the house that I would be able to make my payments because he was going to leave his pot lights and his whole complete grow setup in the basement so that I could grow pot. He would give me the clones to get started. And that was how I was going to be able to make the high payment he wanted on the house. <laughs> wow. He's like, it's, it's a big ticket price, but it comes with a, a, <laughs> a working... Right. Here's the house. It's a really high payment, but it comes with a business that you can run, you know? <laughs> as far as using cannabis in that way like i mean were you able to kind of get around the whole 215 laws because it was a religious organization or how did that how did that work um we were never legal per se but it, it you know it's humble everybody knows that weed is there and nobody really wanted to mess with the issue of dealing with the church so we never mm. were really there was one officer who gave us a lot of problems but the huh. The police department themselves were never against us. Okay. They understood that we were offering a service, and obviously we didn't allow any other drugs or drinking, and even when we had a very large celebration, you know, 200-plus people for, you know, our 420 celebrations or our April 15th celebration or 215 celebrations, you know, things like that, uh, we never had a, a neighbor call the cops on us. We were always respectful. We always our neighborhood loved us. We, you can look online and see that we did things like clean up walks where we walked around the streets and we filled up bags of garbage. Um, we did, you know, the whole stretch of motels down there, the, uh, blue heron and all those we did once a month, we did drop offs from our church of peanut butter sam- and jelly sandwiches and, mm-hmm. and apples and bags of fresh vegetables from the garden and things like that. Yeah. We were very, for, we were, we always tried to, counter that negative stigma that, that, yes, we did use cannabis for some people with all the good activities that we did for the community around us. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We offered, I can show you receipts still to this day where we offered over 100 pounds of produce in the winter mm-hmm. from our grow to the uh, food bank. Wow. Fresh mm-hmm. produce that you normally wouldn't be able to get in wintertime, but because we were already had the grow lights growing the pot, we <laughs> figured, why don't we grow some food down here anyways, and we can actually do some good with this. Oh, that's so funny. I'm thinking back to like years ago when they would do the radio ads for um, for indoor scenes and they and they had to be so cloaked about it. And they would talk about how like your tomatoes and your kale and and you would always just kind of giggle as you listen to that. Like, yeah, kale. That's what they're growing with those. (laughs) I think you are the first person. When I would go to the grow stores to get supplies, I had to actually like be adamant. No, really. Will this work for food? I'm growing food with this. Will this, you know? <laughs> I know I, you look at me, I got a big beard and tie dye shirt on. I'm, I'm a pothead, right? But I'm not really growing food with this. I'm growing food. Will this poison people? <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. I wonder if they ever truly believed you. I thought you were. <laughs> 
Well, I, I think that's great. One of the things that keeps coming up, we've been interviewing some Back to the Landers, and they have all talked about coming up here and how marijuana was a way for them to pay the bills, to pay to pay for the land, to pay for their activism work. A lot, you know, a lot of them are really involved in uh, community and uh, political actions, and so it sounds like that's just is continuing still with you right. and. Um, yeah. Um... Even when we grew pot, we always, we had a, a thing that we, a, a philosophy that we always gave away more than we sold. We grew it for members of the church. We gave away, honestly, we had a really nice setup, at least in my opinion, and we grew three pounds a month because we were doing a cycling system uh-huh. where, you know, you have your, your clones in one room, your veg department in another room, your bud in another room, and then your dry cycle when you're moving everything out every month from one room to the next. And so with that three months, one pound was sold medically so that we could pay the light bills and those type of bills. The next pound was used by ourselves and our friends and family and community members. And then the third pound was given out to people who were medical patients who needed it or given out to people who were members of the church for their personal use. So we always grew three and gave away two. You know what I mean? Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. So I have a couple questions related to that. Just um, so so far, actually, you are the first person we have talked to on this podcast that has been in the uh, the indoor grow scene. We've had people mostly who have been, you know, outdoors, um, you know, all natural light, and and I know for my tenure in Humboldt County, there's been almost kind of, you know, among some some people, there's definitely there's kind of a little bit of a, a snootiness almost, you know, because you know indoor versus outdoor. Um, did you did you have any crossover? Were you did you have any association with people who were doing the outdoor thing or? I, I knew people who did, and I was always jealous of the amount of pounds they were getting, <laughs> but I was never really jealous for the amount of time and effort and danger of right. being robbed or spotted by the cops and messed with. So I was always really happy kind of with my own setup. And yeah, I'm, I'm on that snooty side. There's one half of the people who say, oh, outdoor is so much better, and that half the people say, oh, indoor is so much better. I'm kind of fall under the indoor category, guys. Interesting. So. Interesting. <laughs> Do you think... Uh, as indoor is better as far as quality or sustainability um sustainability okay uh, i i definitely know i've had some beautiful natural outdoor that was way better than anything i've ever grown myself but sustainability wise see now i had an indoor grow but my indoor grow was powered by the sun wind and our own system there wow. so i wasn't paying the giant by the end now at first for the first couple of years there oh man we were paying huge outrageous bills you know uh because we were running six lights and each light in california or at least in Humboldt, was running us at that time period about a hundred bucks a month so that's an extra 600 bucks on your light bill plus we we're a church and a community center that basically and we were what was kind of considered a transitional housing if you had children and you were had no place to go, you could come stay with us. So on average, we had 20 people staying at that property at any given moment or time, which was really wonderful because we didn't call ourselves a homeless shelter. We called ourselves a transitional housing unit. Mm-hmm. We were able to then be a rental reference. And because we ran the farm there, we were able to be a job reference for those young couples who had kids who were in bad places, and they were able to get into apartments and get onto their feet and actually we've helped over 96 people get from homelessness into housing right. and we're really proud of that yeah you should be so that so that brings a, a couple more things just so when you do talk about indoors being more sustainable i think you know i i think most people would probably scratch their heads a little bit at that because you're talking about for most people you know they're not they're, they're electricity is not being supplied by solar, by wind, by any kind of any, you know, they're plugged directly into the system, um, pulling all their power from that. So can you talk to us? Because I know that your specialty is kind of literally unhooking from all of those systems. So can you tell us a little bit about what that looks like? 
Sure, uh, but I want to make a small correction there. That I, I, it's a very minor distinction. People claim there's a big off the grid movement, and I am not part of that. Hmm. I am. I'm a part of the movement of becoming producers on the grid. Gotcha. Okay. So I, kind I of like CCAT does, where they actually spin their meter backwards and can sell back electricity to PG&E. Exactly. Because. Yeah. Why, you know, why not become, there's a solution, there's a problem in, in the world, not just America, but I focus mainly in my own backyard. So there's a problem in America of we're not producing enough clean energy versus unclean energy. Mm. And if just solving it for yourself is one thing, but why not solve it for your community? Everybody, you know, get yourself to where you can be making a small stipend, but actually being part of the solution to the energy crisis. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. do that for all of our, our beliefs, the food, because we focus on five major things, which is improving your mind and yourself and getting yourself to understand what freedom looks like to you and kind of notice that you're you're under an illusion of freedom here in America and that you can become free. Um, and I'm not one of those political people. I'm just talking about freeing yourself from monthly bills, because if you have to wake up every morning and go to a nine to five job that you hate just to pay bills you're not free. You're a financial slave. And so that's what we focus on is first, you know, improving your mindset, then learning how to eliminate your food bill, then learning how to eliminate your power bill, then your water bill. And then finally, once you've eliminated all your bills, how to take what you're passionate about and turn that into a profiting business for yourself. Because most businesses fail within the first two years and they Mm -hmm. fail because you can't make your bills and make a profit. Well, if you don't have any bills, then everything you make, even if you only make 20 bucks that week, that 20 bucks is pure profit. Yeah. And so just to clarify, Carl, for people that aren't familiar with you or the work that you do, when you say we, can you tell us who specifically you're referring to? Um, I'm referring to Manibu Farms. Okay. We, we have 19 farm lots, many of them in Humboldt. They're small. They're based out of people's front yards and backyards, and they gather up their produce and sell it collectively together and they work towards living completely self-sustainable. We also have a team in Oregon, a team in Michigan and a team in New York that have all started here that all originally came from Humboldt, moved away and kept the farm club going and started in their new town. Okay. And so, and so you do this, you help people start this up, but then you also, there's an educational aspect to this of what you do, right? Yes, we're, we we ran a small classroom system there in, in California, and we're trying to expand it to much bigger here. This is a bigger problem here in Flint. Everybody's really, really super poor. They don't have that wonderful cannabis green that Humboldt has that kind of shields us from the rest of the world's boredom. I mean, I was so shocked when I left Humboldt how much that cannabis has really saved Humboldt. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That income yeah. coming in there and those redwoods making that heat, that rainforest atmosphere has made it so that it's shielded from the heat that's going everywhere else in California. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the droughts and everything dying out there. Mm-hmm. And Humboldt kind of shielded from that, or at least somewhat. And it's also shielded from the financial crisis that's everywhere else in the world because of the pot industry. Hmm. Mostly. That brings up an interesting point, too, because I think... And I'm imagining you're following it to some degree, even though I know you've got a lot going on in Michigan right now. But I mean, because what we feel like as people who've been here just even in the last few years as, you know, long term residents is just even in the last three to four years, this is shifting so quickly. And there's this huge land grab and, you know, the prices of pounds are plummeting and there's so many people like it's kind of exploded. And so the fear is that, you know, ganja is the next bubble that's about to burst in the you know American West um, did you witness any of that or um, I certainly witnessed the, the price fluctuations as things became more le- legal and more legit I mean I can remember a time where I was easily getting three thousand dollars a pound and then towards the end there we were lucky if we could get you know 22 down to even sometimes less than two nineteen hundred a pound. Oh, and people so. would be so happy to get those numbers nowadays. <laughs> In the podcast that we listened to, um, you were they, you were talking about how you helped nineteen families 
um, be, to reduce their bills to nothing. Um, Correct. Bill to nothing. Okay. Was that uh, here in Humboldt, or is that you've done that? That's a variety of places. Is that part of the Manabu? Um, that's sixteen in Humboldt, and then some elsewhere. But oh. the primarily of it is in Humboldt. Okay. And so that is the. That's going back to that. Um, you know, growing your own food, being able to produce your own electricity. So that goes back to being a producer, making yourself a Correct. producer. and No longer switching the mindset from being a consumer to becoming a producer the way we America was years ago. You know what I mean? When everybody had a profiting job and everything was going good. Or not everything, but a lot of more than it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a church in Flint, Michigan? Is that a part of your life in, right now, or was that... At this moment, no. We're focusing this year primarily on the garden. If we find that there is a need that people are being discriminated because from their religions and they're having a place where they can't find a place here that they can pray and feel comfortable. Because, you know, a lot of the people that attended our church were discriminated very minorly, but it's enough to make you not want to go. Like, you come to church and... The pastor afterwards comes over and goes, you know, we could smell that pot on you if we really would prefer if you didn't smell like that when you were here. Hmm. That enough alone is enough to go to someone like, I don't want to be there. You know what I mean? If this pot is part of your faith and part of or part of your medicine or part of something you use on a daily basis, it made it so people didn't want to go to those places. You know what I mean? And, and so, and, and then I understand why pastors do that because of the fact that the exact opposite by not by if, if four or five people smell reek of ganja and 30 people there don't appreciate that or feel negatively about that then you've got to go with the safety of the majority mm-hmm. so you're saying that, these people were discriminated against particularly for their marijuana use and so in in religious places and i'm not just speaking of christian faith the, the all-faith religion itself is well I'll tell you about the church of the three each week we had a different guest speaker from a different walk of faith or a different religion we never preached that this was the only way or the way that you had to be we showed you and educated about the other faith about everything and it's an all faith church is more about coming together of a people of different religions you know, everybody who sat down in our church didn't claim to be all faith. They had their own, you know, we've had Jewish to Catholic to bizarre ones that I won't even go into. <laughs> <laughs> that those people felt comfortable coming and practicing their faith and their religion that way. Uh-huh. Where did the name come from? Uh, all faith is a oh. spinoff or a branch of interfaith. Which was originally founded by Shastadananda. Okay. And it was originally a way to kind of combine primarily uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Catholicism into one place where people could worship together. Mm-hmm. And all the religions share the fact of they are, they believe in one deity, one divine power. And so they. Didn't, even though interfaith tried to be open as much as they could, they didn't accept people who were pantheists or who believed that there was a god and a goddess, or people who believed that there was 15 gods. Hmm. So interfa- or all faith was developed to try to breach that, breach that gap within the religious community and build a place where anybody of any worship could come together as long as they weren't harming anyone else. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to back it up if we could just a little bit about, so I love, 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 love hearing about all the, the volunteer and altruistic and community driven work that you did. But I, I know that one of the larger critiques of the cannabis industry is that it is, um, it is seen as just purely extractive, right? As people coming in, 
um, who don't really have a connection to the community and, you know, either setting up a grow house or setting up a big, huge grow on land somewhere. And they're just here to make their money and then leave. Um, and that, that, that has been the trend. And do you, in what, in your tenure here, did you see other people who were giving back to the same level that you yourself were? Um, Yeah, I'm going to say I did, but not as many as I would have liked to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, The Hummingbird Healing Center really worked hard to make sure that they were different in that exact aspect, that they had more than just cannabis offered to the community. They offered other healing herbs. They did classes and things like that. But even they didn't reach the potential they wanted to reach to. You know, and so a, a lot of the the cannabis clubs I've noticed are profit driven and really driven to the for the good of the community. Some of them are, don't get me wrong. Uh, and a, and a lot of the personal growers and people like that were where it fell to to fill in that gap of being using the cannabis money to, or the cannabis income towards helping the community. Mm-hmm. Instead of, I would have liked to see more of it being done in our, on the dispensary side as well, is all I'm, I guess I'm trying to get at. Right. Okay, so the Hummingbird Healing Center, that was a, that's a dispensary? Is... It was a dispensary. Um, it was only open for a few years. They fell into some legal gray area of where they were located at on the city. Um, and so they ended up having to shut down. I'm not sure if they've reopened but they were, yeah. they were one of the, the best dispensaries there in town. Mm. Uh, I, I, as I said, they, they offered hundreds of other herbs, everything from Molin and you know ginseng and everything else available there that you can imagine. And they didn't focus purely on the weed. They, they focused on having classes about how to cook with your food and how to make things better and improve your health generally and massage classes and things like that that really were, I think, more of a benefit than just being a dispensary because it exposed people to these alternatives. Yeah. yeah. They came in to get the, their standard cannabis and were like, oh, what's this? Right. You a, know, a whole spectrum of healing. And at the end, the, the, they took all the money when they were shutting down that they had made and they put it out to artist grants to members in the community to help them pay their bills. Wow. Mm. Wow. So I'm just curious about, I mean, because I don't think people naturally gravitate towards philanthropy. I think it's something that something has to happen inside of your life for you to go. I mean, because the dominant culture is saying, get yours, right? You know, and so this whole, you know, giving back is kind of an afterthought. Like if there's a little leftover, then I can like let it trickle on down to the rest. And I think that's just where we are as a country. So I just, I mean, was there a particular turning point in your evolution or your life where, I mean, have you always been community minded or was there a moment, a turning point in your own life where you decided to become more involved and more make that a focal point of your time and your efforts? Well, that's a really good question. And, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say I was in Honeydew at a Native American retreat there and I was going through a vision quest because I wanted to quit smoking tobacco. And I was, I figured four days up on a mountain by myself was a good way I could yell at the trees instead of yell at my wife while I was going through the quit tobacco phase. <laughs> um, and I was thinking generally about the whole scenario of, I had recently become interested in growing my own food because I wasn't even growing massively. I wasn't a farmer. I didn't consider myself a gardener or a farmer yet. You know, I was a city kid, but I was, I had really become passionate recently about growing my own food and I wanted to kind of help others grow food. And I think that really was that, that defining moment was up there. And it was about the time I realized that (sighs) there was a fact that I was aware of at that time. And it was something about the fact that they had done an average of the American age of the farmer and the American if you took all the farmers in America and you divided them up and figure out what their average age was, it was 65 years old. Hmm. And so 
that meant to me in the next 20 years we were going to lose, you know, 50% of our farmers just to natural causes. And yet new children and new generation didn't want to become farmers. They didn't want to become gardeners because they wanted to be something cool. You know, they wanted to be a pot grower. They wanted to be a YouTube star or a rock star. And I figured we had to kind of, I wanted to flip the script. I wanted to make farming cool. And that's where I really got passionate with my community was I was trying to make farming cool again. And I, I, I came up with this concept up there that outlaws, whether it was back in the old West and you were reading about Billy the Kid or whether it was nowadays and you're watching movies like Ocean Elevens or whatever, outlaws have always been kind of cool. And the fact that they were making, you know, you hear the horror stories of people being arrested for uh, rainwater collection or for homeowners associations telling you you have to tear down your garden or you hear the stories about people getting fines because they have compost bins, things like that. And it's the fact that the cities were making urban farming done right outlawed. And then I thought we could embrace this and kind of turn farming into an outlaw activity and therefore gather the youth back towards it. And it worked. We had a lot of people who, from our down uh, Southern California chapters, had a lot of people join up who were on the verge of being in gangs or were already in gangs, and they became part of a farm club because they got that family atmosphere they wanted yeah. and because it still kept their rep up that they were outlaw farmers and they went to these outlaws. We're breaking the law by putting these trees in the ground. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, um, so, no, go ahead. And that just kind of snowballed from there. Getting into growing, I say growing your own food is, is a, a drug. Once you get started, you end up becoming, wanting to become more and more self-sufficient. Uh-huh. Well, and we've talked about that in uh, some of our other podcasts about, you know, that connection to the land and, and um, what that cultivates in your own self. And so bringing kids from the city and, and, teaching them how to grow their own food. I mean, the connection that you're making when you see that, uh, you know, when you have that, that distinct connection of, of growing your own food and then eating it, and it does give you more of a connection to the land and it gives you perhaps a bit more of, of, uh, purpose or drive or. Yeah. I mean, not to go back to the religion thing and all, but Will Allen is a personal hero of mine. And he said, he always says that we touch God when we touch the soil. You know, and it, it's it's true. It, you you get out there and you get your hands in the dirt and you just feel better. There's actually science behind this. There is microbes within the soil that have been proven to fight depression. Mm. You can you can look me up on this. There is mm. microbes in the soil that have been proven to fight depression. And getting out there and tending to the soil and tending to the earth actually helps bring about a more positive atmosphere in your own life, and therefore that radiates out towards others. Mm-hmm. I worked on a farm, on an organic farm in Willow Creek for a few summers, and I remember just for hours just being on my hands and knees, crawling along the the carrot rows and weeding them out, and just how meditative and just lovely it was in a beautiful setting, and that got me really hooked on growing my own food. And so, yeah, I don't feel complete if I don't have at least a garden bed of food somewhere. Right. And I, I really... I really have worked on, for years now, for the last 10, 12 years, we've worked on the point of changing the way gardening is done. Gardening books and gardening things all teach you how to garden. They focus on the garden and doing these steps. And what we teach is we show you that there are different gardening methods, there are different gardening techniques, and that no two people are the same. So no two gardens should be the same. We show you what makes, what will help you get enjoyment and produce out of your garden. Nice. So there's no garden shaming. You can garden (laughs) how you want and and not be worried about showing your friends. Right. You know, I mean, everybody's, you, you, for a while, everybody had to plant their plants in straight rows. And then for a while, people got into everything's got to be done in these square four by four garden boxes because that's the best method, you know. And then people started getting more into the permaculture method and into those type of things. And when you take them all together and you realize that each have their own benefits, their own drawbacks, mm-hmm. their own things, you've got to figure out what works best for 
you and the environment you have available to you. Can you tell the story of the uh, when how you got into growing your own food that with the onions? It was the Blue Heron Motel that we were trapped at. We were paying almost seven hundred dollars a month, and we had lived there for over a year, and we couldn't get out because there the uh, Floyd Squires there wouldn't even accept his. He wrote me this beautiful rental reference that I had become security for the property. I was improved the property a ton. I had fixed up the property. All these things. This was before the fire, of course, years before that, and uh, they they wouldn't even accept their own rental reference for us because motels do not count as a house no matter how much you pay and how how, how much you live there. It doesn't count as a rental history. And so we were trapped there and I was we were really poor. I mean, in this one room, there was me, my wife, my wife's sister, and my sister, and my sister's boyfriend. It was just horrible. I mean, and we were poor, we were broke, we were not able to, we were about to have it was fried bologna for the second night in a row. Mm. And the first night we had had fried bologna with bread, but now we were completely out of bread. So it was just plain fried bologna. And I thought, man, I've got to go outside and look around and see if there's somebody I can borrow some bread or some rice off of or something from one of these other neighbors. And I stepped outside and instead of seeing another neighbor, the wind blew just right and I smelled onion. And I walked around to the side of the property and where that little... I can actually tell you guys a little more of the story where that they had a security light that would come on. And because people were constantly doing drug deals out there in the parking lot, that security light went on all night long. And there was this beautiful crop of pearl onions growing there. And so I, I, I went and picked up some pearl onions. I brought them in. We fried them up. And, man, they were, because it was the first taste in my adult life, of something fresh from the garden. I'm sure when I was a kid, I, I remember picking green beans with my, I remember picking green beans on my grandmother's property, you know what I mean, and eating them off the vine. But I don't remember it in my adult life. That was the first moment. And they tasted so wonderful, so fresh, so much better than an onion from the store that I was hooked. I started to think about, man, somebody had thrown that out of a sandwich five, six years ago, and it just grew up, and it's just been growing there every year. Because I had lived there for friggin'. I think that we were at that time, we were there for almost two years. I can't remember the exact time. I mean, it was just a year we had already been there. But at that point, I was like, oh, my goodness. I never knew these onions were here. How many other plants could you just throw out a piece of the plant and it would grow up and continue to grow every year? And so that's what really got me started. I started my first garden within a garden with the intent of I wasn't going to water this garden. I wasn't going to weed this garden. I was just going to put some plants out there and what lived I would then know would live on. And honestly, I've showed people how to grow 50 to 60% of their own food in a one-bedroom upstairs apartment in the city. Wow. Hmm. It doesn't matter where you're at, you can grow food. You can, And we always say with Manabu, we say grow food every way and everywhere. Every type of method that's out there, hydroponically, aeroponically, aquaponically, soil, whatever you've got, there's always a way to grow food new, different, fun, exciting, and to produce more in your small, tiny space within the city. And you can do all of that sustainably. Is that That's right. Okay. That's right. 100% sustainably. They say there's levels. I personally say there's levels to organic. And, like, you can go to the store and buy something that says it's organic, but what was it made with? Where did it come from? You know, you don't really know. And so I believe the highest level of organic is self-sustaining organic which means nothing touches my plants or my food or my even my herb that does not get created by our hands. So we raise our own rabbits, we raise our own fish, we create our own soil, we create our own soil additives, we raise comfrey and other herbs that we can make compost teas out of. And it's a way to make sure that it's not only self-sustaining, but it's also protected because you know every single part that touched it hmm. you know you know there's no poison from the dirt you bought and that oh well that shipment was had this accidentally mixed it and you don't find out to six months later you know what i mean when they recall it so is there a way to take this idea and these practices and a, and somehow apply it to a larger scale marijuana cultivation 
because it seems like we're kind of at this place in Humboldt where um, it, it's happening. That's what people are doing. Is there a way to do it sustainably or is it just kind of monocropping and you just, there's no way to do it sustainably? Sustainably on a commercial grade, large scale, I'm going to say, yeah, it's doable. It's going to cost uh, uh, more than most people are wanting to put into it. It's certainly going to cost more than just setting up a commercial grow. If you set up a giant commercial grow, that's going to cost you X amount. And if you set up a self-sustaining commercial grow, it's going to cost you three times that X. And, I mean... But you'll make it in the long run just by saving on your power bills. Right. Well, and it it seems to me your soil bill, those type of things. Well, because one one comparison you hear a lot is you know as legalization has opened up a little bit more is to the uh, the wine industry and how like you know there's always going to be you know the four dollar crap on the bottom shelf, but there's also people who are doing something that's you know maybe it's biodynamic or it's you know very artisanal and that's like the top shelf and they can charge. $200 a bottle or something like that, and people will buy it. Um, I mean, do you see that if someone were to take that upon themselves or if if a small enclave of farmers decided they were going to grow in that more uh, sustainable method, do you see the potential for the market opening up that way for a spot for, you know, sustainably grown, organic, biodynamic pot? (laughs) Oh, yeah, I totally do. I mean, I have a friend over here who, here in Flint, who I've met who is a grower, and he constantly is preaching and sells his at a higher value because he does a, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess up the word, veganic method. Basically, mm. it's like he took his plants and gave them a vegan diet. There's <laughs> nothing that is any animal byproducts whatsoever within it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay, so that's the next new way. I like it. I like it. (laughs) And so he's very, you know, he's selling it as an artistic or an artistic, you know, type of thing that it is that this higher value because it's organic and it's, it's like, I want to say veganic. Uh Uh-huh. Is he calling it veganic? Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's quite, I I truly see that as long as we've had pot, even in an illegal stage, we've had things like, you know, uh, what's that big magazine? I'm drawing a blank here. High Times? Thank you, High Times. We've had High Times magazine and (laughs) High Times shows and people judging for the best bud and the best quality of this. And those, those strands, the next season, are the seeds even on the market are more valuable, let alone the bud, hmm. you know? So, yeah, I truly believe that we're, we're reaching that stage and that point where it's going to be, you have your common buds that you can pick up at the corner store, and then you have your cream of the crop artistic, this guy's over, and you're going to have, also for those religious users, you're going to have those guys who are over there, yes, this plant was prayed with and chanted at and sung with every day or whatever, right. you yeah. know? So it's gonna you're gonna find those artistic, higher valued crops. I think eventually. Eventually, on a right. scale, we're already getting it, but eventually, I think we're gonna know about it on a regular basis. One thing I had wanted to ask you, Carl, was just um, so I, I'm imagining that part of what you do, especially when you're going into a new place and you want to set up systems that are going to make it more self-sustaining, I would imagine. But part of what you do is do you have to evaluate the systems that are already in place and how the resources are being used or 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 not used or misused. Um, once we got everything established here at this property, we evaluated it for three months so that we could get a baseline of what everything was before we started to use our system to improve it. Okay. Well, I wanted to bring that kind of to just a larger lens. As someone who has lived in Humboldt County and observed the culture and has had a tie to the marijuana culture here, what are ways that you see from a sustainability, you know, want-to-be producer um, standpoint how how could we do better <laughs> i know that's a big question <laughs> right um now am i answering this question 
specifically to the cannabis industry or to the Humboldt area? You know, I, I'm interested in both. I think, um, you know, because we are an area that really likes to call ourselves, um, you know, we pride ourselves on being pretty ecologically friendly and, you know, we're known as kind of a green area. But so I, I, I either, either or both. <laughs> Not that that helps. Okay. Um, generally to both, I guess, I would say that it's in America... And in Humboldt especially, we have this kind of concept of the city or the power company or this guy over here, the, the, the bigger organizations, the big money are going to invest in solar and they're going to invest in water and they're going to invest in self-sustainable energy mm. resources and technologies. And they're going to do it for us and it's going to trickle down so that we're still paying the power company, but no, at least now it's, it's ecological. Well, I say don't change that. That's the thing that needs to be changed. You need to take it back to yourself, to take back your water safety and your water creation to yourself. Take back, don't rely on those city pipes. Figure there are ways to do it yourself. Figure out how to do the same thing with your power, the same thing with your food. And I'm not saying don't eat McDonald's or Burger King or whatever Subway or whatever restaurant, you, the fancy restaurant you love, you know, because it's not self-sufficient, I'm saying just don't have to rely on that. Don't have to rely on the power company. Know that you can create your own power. You know what I'm saying? So taking that freedom back to ourselves is the one thing, and to a smaller scale. Uh, And another thing, every time you look into solar power, and even if you were to call Six River Solar right down the street, because I did this when I was there, I called Six River Solar, and they came out and praised my house for how much it was going to cost to put solar on and hook up to the city grid with it. And they quoted me $35,000, I think it was. Wow. Okay. And that, oh, don't worry, the government will pay back this amount to you and blah, 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 and you can get these subsidies. And, and we got a better system there than what they said they were going to give me. It took us six years, and we only spent $100 a month. Huh. Okay. Don't believe the hype that you have to buy in with big money to become self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. You can do it for next to nothing spread out over time. Hmm. If you want to buy in, if you've got money, do it because it's instant. You're, you're there. You've got it. But you can do it piece by piece, slowly on any budget. Well, and that's interesting too, because I mean, I think typically, you know, when you talk about eating organic or you know buying things that are sustainably made, or it's typically seen as kind of a luxury. You know, like oh, wouldn't that be nice? But I got bills to pay and you know children to feed. Like I don't, I can't afford to. I don't understand why that is. Honestly, Hmm. I really don't. I. It's a kind of a pet peeve of mine. If you're not paying money for pesticides, and you're not paying money for all these type of things, and you're running a truly organic place, farm, that food costs you less to make. Sure, it costs you a little more time, but it costs you less money to produce that crop. So why are we charging more for it? Right. It, it makes no sense. Did you have any connection to, to Southern Humboldt, or were you mostly based in Northern Humboldt? Mostly in another, uh, Northern Humboldt. Uh, Eureka was my hometown, and we focused primarily there. We do, as I said, we have a, a branch of the church and the farm that it opened in Honeydew. I don't even know if that's still Humboldt. Yes, it is. Uh, and we had one small group that opened up in Fortuna and one that opened in Arcadia, but so mostly Northern. Okay. And can you tell us how you made your way to Flint? I'm actually uh, fascinated by that. Okay. Um, it, it was a very weird path to get here. Uh, we left Eureka because of the fact that we were, as I said earlier in the interview, we were having some problems with the city council and legal issues of them saying we could not live in our church because it was zoned a commercial building even though we had lived there for seven years and we had a house basically built there. Um, And we were kind of tired of fighting with them because there had been different issues.
first they had said we needed to tear out our garden and then when the news crews found out that they were making us tear down a garden for a parking lot they immediately called us and said oh no we're sorry we're, we're backing down <laughs> and we had problems with he wanted us to ins- come up to code and install a $14,000 sprinkler system it just seemed after a while that they were kind of finding loopholes to deal with the fact that we were a cannabis church and they wanted to get rid of us without actually tackling the cannabis issue. Uh-huh. And so we we decided we were going to, we'd already eliminated our bills and we wanted to do it on a kind of a grander scale and we thought we were going to go out to the desert in Lassen County uh, as far east as you can go and still stay in California. And we wanted to start a small village. So we took a bunch of people from Humble, uh, I think a total of 13 people originally left with us for Humble, from Humble to out there with no water, no power, no nothing into the middle of the desert, whatever, not even actually looking at the land. We just went straight there and said we could do it with anything. And we started a garden there. We started growing our own food there. We started growing our own power there. And after about one year, the county came out to do their year inspection because we were two and a half hours from the nearest building of the valley that we were in. And they said, well, where's your well? And we said, we don't have a well. We use oxygen from the air generators that creates oxygen out of the air. And we produce all our water that way. And we collect written snow. And they're like, well, we have a a law here that says you can't live in the county if you don't have a well on your property you have and if you don't move out of the property by the first of the month on the first of the month we're going to start charging you five hundred dollars a day that you're here oh geez so needless to say we loved living out out there off the grid all by ourselves it was wonderful it was peaceful but the one thing we had missed was helping people so we wanted to go back to helping people so we thought about coming back to humble but we felt like we would have come back as failures. Mm. You know, we had had this dream that we were going to make this village out there, and if we came back to Humboldt, we would have been coming back at first to stay on some friends' couches, Mm. you know, and then built up from scratch again. So we took the money that we had from selling our land there, and we bought, we looked into the poorest cities in America and the cities that had the worst crime rates and the cities that were the worst (laughs) off, And we decided we were going to buy a place in Detroit, Michigan. We bought a threeplex of apartments for three thousand dollars. Wow! And we're going to go up there, and we're going to fix these apartments up. Because I called up the neighbor, the everybody in the neighborhood, and everybody in the neighborhood said, "Don't even go there if you don't got a gun." Wow! That's the worst part of town. And we're like, "Well, that's fine. I can deal with criminals. I've dealt with criminals my whole life. I got no problem." You know. With that, we just want to go there and we'll build this little place up and we'll build it self-sustaining and we'll help these these people get out of being criminals because they won't have bills that they're relying on to do these, have to do these crimes. Yeah. And we got there and the company who had sold us the house after traveling across five states in a U-Haul and having nothing left to our name, we got there and the, the three-plex of apartments they sold us, they sold us pictures and videos that were 10 years old. And the place was completely crumbled almost to the ground. So we were stuck there. And remember how I said earlier that we helped 96 different people get off their, out of homelessness and into homes. Yeah. One of those families now lived in Flint, Michigan. Hmm. We were only an hour away in Detroit. And they heard that we had one day left on a U-Haul. And after that, we weren't even going to have a place to sleep. We had no clue where we were going or what we were going to do. And they said, come stay with us. So when we got here, within a few weeks, this town is so desperate for to, to try to come back from being falling apart that houses are dirt cheap. And we were able to put $700 down on a house and only pay $260 a month for that house. Wow. For a four-bedroom house, for the same size of piece of property and same size of piece of house that I was paying $2,200 a month for in Humboldt. Right. That's how we ended up in Flint. We're here to help out with the water crisis. We're here to help out to teach people to become self-sufficient, self-sustainable, and free from their monthly bills. And once we've got the school up and running and this house paid off, which is quite easy to do at two hundred and sixty dollars <laughs> a month. Oh, let me re- let me just start off. The house that we were buying there in California was three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Right. Uh-huh. Total price for this one is twenty. 
Wow, that is if quite I could a difference. Cash, they would have given it to me for ten if I would have wow. had cash up front. Since then, we have seen houses go for as cheap as fifteen hundred dollars, and you own them. And that's mostly just because, well, I mean, it's everything. It's it's just so depleted there, right? I mean, even the water is right. as bad as what they say. There's no no industry, no jobs, and so really, what the area needs, it sounds like more than anything, are are you and people like you who can you know bring about that much needed education and empowerment, so they can you know not need. Like building the time, we yeah. set up this house here as an example that's self-sustaining and show the neighbors and then we help the neighbors convert and then they help their neighbors convert and slowly but surely we're going to bring this town back to life. Yeah. Uh, and I have about a five-year plan to be here and then I'm saying if I'm not completed with it, as good, much good as I've done, as much as good as I'm going to get done and I'm going to go back to Humble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you get back to Humble, uh, so are you going to set up another place and, and be an educator in the community on this topic? Oh, yes. I, I, I will be a farmer and an educator on self-sufficiency for the rest of my life unless a miracle happens and everyone in the world becomes self-sufficient. <laughs> Preaching the gospel. So there's no need. I'll be extremely happy. Yeah. Well, I'm just interested. It's like, so Flint is this very extreme example we have right now right of like we've seen what happens when a community becomes you know is 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 manipulated into become overly reliable on a non-sustainable industry right and then the bottom drops out and it crashes and you're left with nothing not even clean water to drink um and so i mean that that is part of the conversation you hear up here in humble is that you know the the bottom's going to drop out of this the bubble of of marijuana is going to burst and then we're going to get, you know, Humboldt County is going to be in a dire place. But I, I wonder if there's a way that we, do we have to get to that point <laughs> before we can start? I don't think we do. I don't think we do. I think the, the key really starts with, you know, I, I, I have this saying that I tell young kids who are on the streets and they're, they're slinging pot and things like that. And I tell them, you know, how many people in the world do you think smoke pot? Well, let's just start with America. How many people in America do you think smoke pot? One out of every, how many out of every 10? Uh, eight. <laughs> Even if it's that high, right? Even if it's eight out of 10 people in America smoke pot, you're still cutting out two of your customers out of every 10 people because food, everybody needs. Right. And you can make a ton of money selling food. The good thing about food is those two people who aren't part of that 10, eight people who smoke pot are the two people who want to call the cops on you and get you arrested. They're not going to arrest you for growing food. Well, and, and I, I really don't think it's eight. It's probably more like six. <laughs> well, well, even if it is six, on the opposite side of that argument, even if it is six, as high as six, which I think it is, I think it's more like six or seven myself too, uh, that means that between them and the people who love those six people, every single person on the planet knows somebody who smokes weed or cares about somebody who smokes weed. Yeah. So the war on weed is stupid. <laughs> and there you have it. End of argument. Case closed. Well, I, I, I guess, and it's just a second part of that. I mean, so there's, you know, one way to look at, you know, kind of averting a potential crisis that we may be headed for, but also just... I, my, my husband is really fond of saying people don't usually shift gears. People don't usually shift their trajectory that they're on unless they're met with some kind of like big cataclysmic, they, they don't shift. And so I think there's that thing of if, if the money's still good, if you're still making it, doing this, you know, huge scale grow or whatever, why, why would you shift into, into more sustainable, small scale, more biodiverse gardening? Or how do you get someone like um, that to well, shift? Here's, here's, here's one that will help get that biodiversity a little bit for them. It is a, a common unknown, not really fact, that, that a law that people don't realize that if you have at least one or two food plants in your grow, if you're doing an indoor grow, and the cops come and mess with you, it is no longer legal 
for them to take your equipment. They can only take, like how they normally take your equipment and they take your herb and they take everything and then you got to right. fight for it back in court. They can take your herb, but they can no longer take your lights or your pumps or your fans because it is illegal to stop you from growing your own food. So every indoor pot grower should have at least one tomato plant and something else <laughs> down there in their garden. And that little knowledge will get enough people starting and they'll be like, wow, that was so fast and so fun. I should grow a little more and they'll give a little more space up a little more space and eventually they'll diversitize out to where they're growing not just pot in their indoor grows and in their outdoor grows they're also growing their own food do you have and, and i think we've spoken to it already but i mean as someone who's lived here and who has a love for this place what what is your your vision if this place could become all that it's meant to become if the the cannabis industry could could shift and grow smartly and sustainably can you give us a, a, just a small snapshot of what that would look like? I would say that for me, that would mean my ideal situation for Humboldt would be a county that is completely self-reliant. Mm. They're not only producing all their own cannabis and all their own medicines, all their own clothing, their own incomes that they're exporting out from there but also their own power, their own food, everything. A completely self-sufficient community would be my ideal situation, and I believe that it's capable, Mm. and I believe cannabis is a big part of it. It can be a big part of the funding, because right now, cannabis is worth a lot of money, and if we can move that money, make that money, and then use it to improve Humboldt County and to improve the self-sustainability of Humboldt County and bring other businesses and other things in, it won't matter if the, the bubble does burst one day because we'll have already brought in so many other things that have made us cushion that break. My friend Noah is a self-described devout atheist Buddhist. He follows the new wave form of the ancient tradition. My 40-something friend who reads more like an enchanting eight-year-old, the glimmering eyes betraying the bright, endlessly enthusiastic soul beneath as he opens his jaw to regale you with its most recently gained scientific morsel, some keen insight into the mating habits of northern Atlantic bullfrogs, say, or intricate details about the migratory patterns of the bottlenecked falcon. Told in the same breathless tone of reverence that most of us reserve for heady philosophical debate, or to relay the latest plot twist in the Game of Thrones. A heavy cross between a vagrant and a monk, thin mattress on the floor, precisely enough thrift store dishes and cutlery in his least kitchen cupboards to cater a dime store feast for no more than three, and a well-heeled bicycle tethered in the shed out back. This, his one consumer convention the humble stand-in for the car he shall never own. A man who will gleefully engage devotees of any stripe in a fierce and fiery debate, who will happily reduce a born-again Christian to sputtering tears of angst and frustration, making the air around them whir with the bevy of swirling facts and figures, a shitstorm of empirical evidence and observational data, leveling their faith, crumbling their certainty. Then he will smile, get up, fix them a cup of tea, and tell them about turtles. When asked to explain his particular brand of makeshift theology, he describes his principal spiritual maxim thus. Don't be an asshole, he tells me. Be kind. Engage the world around you with as much integrity, respect, and compassion as you can humanly muster at any given time. Become so radically romanced by the natural world around you that you have no other option than to leave it in the pristine fashion by whence you cursed encountered it. Buy less stuff, take the bus, read a library book, and ride your damn bike. If you think the pretty, eco-chic, free-trade, shiny, happy, one-tree-planted-in-Uganda-with-every-forty-dollars-purchased coffee cup featured in the newest pages of Bleeding Heart Monthly is going to make you a happier, more stand-up kind of guy... And those shade-grown beans of yours taste a little better. Forget about it. It ain't. They won't. That cracked plastic thing from the free bin at your local thrift store will do just fine. Except he never says a damn word of all of this. I myself have many flowery and poetic means to describe my own moral aims in life. 
credos and maxims inexpertly plumbed from the depths of everything from the world's great spiritual traditions to the globe's great enlightenment gleanings via bumper sticker. Piecing them all together as they serve me into a sort of quasi-feel-good soul food for the uninitiated, the world is my oyster Buddha in my back pocket sort of ragtag holy juju jam. My friend Noah prefers to keep his tautology to a pristine minimum, his quiet life and actions elucidating the rest. Don't be an asshole, he tells me. Simple, sterling, exhaustive in its scope. The eightfold path summed up inside a single, memorable, enactable phrase, offered in true democratic style to the greater populace of life, in all its voluminous forms. The hands of this Spartan grace extended to the fecund fingers of the single-celled organism and the mighty Homo sapiens sapien alike. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of MEND. If you'd like to find out more about Carl Stanley and the work that he does, both with Manabu Farms, or to find out how you can begin to shift your habits to become more self-sufficient, transition from a consumer of energy, and into a producer and live bill-free, check him out on Facebook. Just type in Bill Free to the search box and you'll find the private Facebook group there, 98 members strong already. Also, check out his Manabu Farms page, again by typing Manabu Farms into the search bar or by heading over to manabufarms.blogspot.com. That's M-A-N-A-B-U, where you'll have access to lots of valuable information about Carl and the work that he does, plus links to his over 300 educational instructional videos on YouTube on how you can grow your own food, power, and water and become a bit of an outlaw farmer yourself. We feel very passionately about the work we do here at MEND and are excited to keep this conversation rolling. Please take a moment to hop on over to iTunes and leave us a review. It takes less than a minute and helps others find us and these stories that we share. Thanks for tuning in. Here's to what's to come. Cheers. Cheers.